Coming to you from the Strings and Things Studio in Ventura, California, I'm Karen. I'm Katie. I'm Anne. <laughs> and this is the Strings Unraveled Book Club. I was going to say I'm Katie. You can say that if you want. <laughs> we all want to be Katie. Yeah. No, I don't I, to say that. I don't want to be Katie sometimes. <laughs> um, how's everybody doing? Happy, what month is this? April. April. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> this is your month. Oh, yeah. It is my month. It, does it feel like it's been a long time since your birthday and it was just a couple weeks ago? Yes and no, because I'm like, isn't it May yet? Like, I feel like this month is going by, like, really slow, but also... It was just my birthday, so I don't know what day. Like I don't even know what day of the week it is. Um, well, what are we talking about today, Karen? This was your book. Yeah, our book. This was our. Uh, I picked a book by Celeste Ng 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 mm-hmm. uh, called "Our Missing Hearts." Um, and yeah, yeah, there's a there's a lot in that book. Yeah, so tell us about it. What is it about? Oh yeah, hold on, hold on. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was a. Uh, I guess we could start with like our initial reactions, like we usually do, right? Like, yeah, I, have supposed, I think I'm supposed to give like a, a synopsis. Yeah, your, synopsis. Your synopsis. Yeah. Well, we could talk about what we're working on while you bring. Oh that up. yeah, what are you working on, Candy? Yeah. I am crocheting a sweater. The pattern is called Far Away. Far Away. Thank you. <laughs> um, it's like a granny stripe kind of pullover. Well, it's not really. The yoke is um. Like a color work crochet yoke, and then the body is all in granny stitch. Um, and it uses one, two, three, four colors. And it is very quick. I am zooming right along. I'm all the way in the body. Got a couple inches to go, and then I get, I'm get. i going to do a little more color work at the bottom. Um, yeah. What are you the, working on? Uh, the, t- the name of it was Top of Mind because the crocheters were buzzing. Oh, good. Uh, so I, I was showing it off on your behalf. It's a fun pr- It's a fun pattern. It's, it's cute. I want to make her other sweater. Um, it's like... Granny Go Round? Yeah. Yeah, me too. That one's super cute. Yeah, this is the designer's Iron Lamb, mm-hmm. and she is British, so this pattern is in UK terms. Ruh-roh. So I'm hoping that somebody translates it, or maybe I will translate it, because it's, <laughs> it's probably just like a find and replace on yeah. on Google to replace the terms. Um, but yeah, it's easy and fun. Okay. I am making a sweater that is a direct reaction to the bummer that I found this book to be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I use my little Centro knitting machine to make a sweater and panels, but I'll talk more about that process when we talk about projects on a regular podcast but my colors are neon pink neon yellow and then like to soften the blow of those uh, visually there's a deep dark maroon wine color and then a really rich um, saturated gray it's not a charcoal gray but it's like a dark like almost like a slate yeah slate that's a, that's good a great word it. yeah um yeah but i uh yeah. I needed <laughs> you needed some bright fun colors. Happy. This was a heavy, heavy book. Yeah. What, what um, are you working on, Karen? I'm working on coasters because it's nice and light and easy. Uh it's just a few rows with a little you you stack them up together and you put them in a little crochet pot and they look like a succulent. Cute. A potted succulent. Adorable. Um I have I'm gonna make another one that's um looks like a potted flower, a pot, little pot of flowers. So uh yeah. That's it's just nice to have a, a simple, nice 
comforting project. <laughs> yeah, that's like satisfying. You get get some action. And you did some satisfaction. Yeah. I mean, so not that I wasn't satisfied with the book, but we'll get into that. So I'm going to go over the synopsis. This book is about 12-year-old bird, like the, you know, bird gardener. lives. He lives a quiet existence with his loving but broken father, a former linguist who now shelves books at a university library. Bird knows not to ask too many questions, stand out too much, or stray too far. For a decade, their lives have been governed by laws written to preserve American culture. That's in quotation marks. In the wake of years of economic instability and violence. To keep the peace and restore prosperity, the authorities are now allowed to relocate children of dissidents, especially those of Asian, Asian origin, and libraries have been forced to remove books seen as unpatriotic, including the work of Bird's mother, Margaret, a Chinese-American poet who left the family when he was nine years old. Bird has grown up disavowing his mother in her poems. He doesn't know her work or what happened to her, and he knows he shouldn't wonder but when he receives a mysterious letter containing only a cryptic drawing, he is pulled into a quest to find her. His journey will take him back to the many folk tales she poured into his head as a child, through the ranks of an underground network of librarians, into the lives of the children who have been taken, and finally to New York City, where a new act of defiance may be the beginning of much-needed change. Um, this is very dystopian, um, and just a... Just a quick, I'm not going to say, how did you like it? I'm just going to say, how'd you feel about it? Because it's not really a book that you like. I I liked I, the book. I thought it I'm was... shocked. I thought for sure you're going to hate it. No. Oh. I thought it was well, well written. I think it was, it was poignant and it was um, scary. <laughs> and, and it's terrifying. Um, no, I, I, I think it, I, I enjoyed listening to it. I, I was drawn to, I was compelled to finish it. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I enjoyed it as much as you could enjoy something with a, with heavy subject matter like this, I guess. Um, I was extremely affected by it. Yeah. 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 Uh, it is all those things you said, beautifully written, well-performed, except Lucy Lou does say library, right? Oh, I don't know. I was listening at like yeah, one and a half was, speed. I was so. listening at 1.4. Okay. Yeah. Library? She says library. Yeah. Oh. yeah. All the time. Lucy and it's yeah. a book that's set in that's libraries. all about libraries. <laughs> Library, yeah. There's two R's in that word. <laughs> As opposed to sherbet. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're not going to there today. We've covered the sherbet. You were right. That, that, you should you should run sherbet. with that one anytime I run it up. <laughs> it's your victory. Um. So this was the author, the same author of Little Fires Everywhere, which I could have sworn we all read, but maybe we talked about it and I jumped on it and I, I read, it read it before I watched the net Netflix show. Um, and I, and then I read it. I, I loved her as an author and I wanted to read more from her because her style of writing is very gripping. She takes these connections between mothers and their children um, and the hard parts that happen. And there's a lot that you don't like we come in, I think, um, I should say how I, I guess I'm sharing how I felt about it. It was, I had a hard time getting through the first part of it. Mm. I w it was so heavy and I was just so torn and it was, I had to stop a few times cause I got very emotional. It was really, really hard. There's the, it's a little too, um, it's scary because I'm seeing what is happening in our world, which will lead into our questions soon. Um, and it was just, 
it, it, it was kind of frightening in a way that, you know, how Margaret Atwood's mm-hmm. The Handmaiden's Tale is also kind of a this could happen. Yeah. And right. Not that far from it kind of scary. Yeah. This so, book is very Handmaid's Tale. I got 1984. I got Fahrenheit 451. Um, we got the Patriot Act. So if we're going to talk yeah. about Written yeah. Word. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there was another one in there, too. Yeah. It, it, yeah, it's scary how it's um, it's it's near future like that it takes place. I don't, I couldn't tell if it I was like current day or just like a reimagining. It's a parallel to us yeah. now. I don't think and it's I, the future, but I was trying to figure that out. So You're indicating you. I'm going to ask our first question because okay, that's question. we're right on to it. Mm-hmm. So this novel takes place in a world that isn't exactly our world, but it isn't not ours. Yeah, either writes N N Ing the in their inner author's note. What elements of the novel's setting align with your understanding and experience of the events of the 21st century thus far? How close do you think we are to a society that like that described in the novel? It's easy to think like, well, this would never happen, right? Because like, I can't imagine that this would happen. But at the same time, you, you're reassuring yourself. Like, yeah, because at the your- same time, <laughs> it ha- not that it not at this scale, but but. Terrible things happen, you know, in American history that we are want to forget, right? And if we don't remember them, we're going to do them again. So it's, yeah, like you said, it's easy to cope and be like, well, it, it's not going to happen, but it also, it, it's reasonable to believe that could. you could see this devolving in the way. So that's what Mary, what, what's her name again? Ma- Margaret Atwood? No. No. Um, Mark, Mar- what is our main character? Our main, um, Oh, Margaret. Um, Margaret. Margaret. Yeah. Okay, oh, so that oh, yeah, is what is she says the whole time when we finally get her point of view. Mm-hmm. She's like, oh, it can't, the, whatever, it doesn't affect me. I have this happy, wonderful little life. Yeah. Which is what I cocoon myself every day that uh-huh. I choose not to listen to the news because it makes my mind race and my heart race in yeah. tiny strokes every time I listen to the news. <laughs> like, we're all guilty of that. Yeah, it's easy to clock out. Comfort yourself, keep yourself um, insulated until you can't anymore. Yeah. Um, this I think is a parallel timeline to from like from two thousand eight going forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that um, she is an adult in two thousand eight. Margaret is. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that she's probably kind of maybe close to my age because they mention um, the toy she played with as a kid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when she's, they're talking about how her parents try to keep her like um, grounded in the society around them, yeah, um, they talk about Cabbage Patch dolls and the other some other toys. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, then she's my. She's my age. Uh-huh. Um, if, uh, she's somewhere between Katie and I, maybe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Cabbage Dolls came out the Christmas I was five. Yeah. Um, and so that's that like stood out to me right away that this is a this is a parallel to our time going forward from two thousand eight. That that's the crisis that they're talking about. Uh-huh. Um, that they're describing the New York point of view of um, what was that called? The camp out on Wall Street. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I don't remember. I don't remember the name. Look at us. <laughs> Look at us. Yeah. yeah. That was a pretty big deal when it was happening. <laughs> and it happened all over the country. 
And they were villainized. Whether mm-hmm. or not they were good or bad, they were definitely villainized. People participating in that um, movement. Yeah. Look at it. Let me look at it. Um, we're just like the kids in the cabin. Yeah. Burning the newspapers. Mm-hmm. Like, that was one of, of all the things that were disturbing. That was upsetting to me that there they had this primary resource yeah. of the truth. Of the, of the history of what happened. And, you know, because children don't have that forethought and yeah we need it now we're gonna burn it in the fire (laughs) yeah yeah i mean you got to do what you got to do to like move on with your life right they needed it to stay warm and to to have something to do to focus on like you know it's easy to to forget about all of the horrible things that happen and and like you said cocoon yourself in your happy little bubble Mm -hmm. and pretend like it's not happening Mm -hmm. because sometimes you like physically need to to be able to move on right yeah well i see the, the scary part, one of the scary things is I see things that are happening like now yeah. paralleling those kind of things. Like when they're, when they're a lot of their talk about um, find, trying to find a scapegoat is exactly what was happening in Nazi Germany. There was economic distress. They didn't want to blame somebody. They blamed the Jews. They blamed something else. And I see her parents trying to make help her fit in with everything to make her into the model minority to for her own safety as a safety measure. Mm-hmm. The more you fit in, the more you, you know, this, this duck your head, don't, don't yeah. look, you know, even, even his father who was not Asian did that at the pizza parlor, mm-hmm. you know, the, you know, we're just going to, I'm doing what I can as a parent to yeah. help protect you. The nail that, that sticks out gets the hammer, but, right? I mean, even the pact, which stands for, what does pact stand for? I remember it's, oh, Protecting the, American again, culture, and culture and traditions, traditions which I think that's kind of what there's trying to happen. I mean, forget about free, free speech when, like in Tennessee, they just kicked, you know. The rule of law was not, ex- was, no, they just kicked well, people out. And, they, and, and, actually, the, and, the, and intentionally in those group they, they kicked out They used the legislators. rule of organization to, I, w- I didn't know exactly what happened, but I was learning a little bit more of it, that they expelled them because they weren't following Robert's rules or something. Like they weren't following the rules of the meeting. Decorum. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. But when decorum is more important than children's lives, <laughs> I mean. Yeah. But, and you could draw a lot of comparisons to things that happen right now, like in North Carolina, I think it is. They're defunding, they're cutting libraries out of their state budget as a proposal. Oh, so yeah. like, like the literal banning of both books in Florida or full libraries in North Carolina. I think it's North Carolina. Like that's happening right now. Yeah. From what I read from that was they were tr- at first trying to ban just a few, you know, books and, and people are like, no, you can't do that. And they're like, fine, we will cut funding to all of that. Well, we, nobody gets this books. This is all so Which dangerous. Is like, it's, it's so like scary. no one really should be in charge of this and they're banning like, any books and saying, like, right. because, so one of the things I heard on, um, I think it was the congressional floor, I caught a snippet of a representative saying um, the role of public education is to um to like give children a global view outside mm-hmm. their homes yeah as opposed to the other side that's saying um well teach school shouldn't be allowed to um um to dictate what children are exposed to that's the parents point of view yeah so like on one side of that you think i'm going to give you this viewpoint because 
um, you should have a full uh, line of sight of, of yeah. the history of something. Sure. But that schools can't be trusted to do that. So so the schools are saying that's what I want to do and that's why you shouldn't ban books. But then in this in this storytelling, schools and all of the legit places are just perpetuating the lie of omission right. again yeah. and again. So yeah. it's like it's so dangerous to put anybody in charge of that. You can't only let what children learn at home be the thing they're exposed to. But you can't trust the school to do schools it. and the, the public indoctrination to do that either yeah Mm -mm. you can't trust anyone no um a a sort of positive ish parallel i can draw is like the whole point of this book is anchored in libraries right so it's this interconnected network of librarians that are like doing the work to find this um to like build this network of lost children and connect them with their parents society of librarians yeah it's awesome um i think it's it's either the New York Public Library or the Brooklyn Public Library, I can't remember which, is providing free access to their entire library for children in states where books are banned. So if you mm-hmm. are a teenager or a child in, let's say, Florida, and you can't access, you know, all of the books that you should, the I think it's the Brooklyn Public Library is providing that access um, digitally. So, you know, that's the... Uh, the librarians yeah. doing the work to, yeah. to fill happens, in the gaps, right? What happens when it ha- it comes to the truth like this? And they because it's in the Patriot Act. Like the Patriot Act was something that made me feel like the most betray, like the like a huge betrayal of me as a citizen. Yeah, mm-hmm. that this got signed into law with no voters um, uh-huh. input. Yeah, yeah, and so that's been in the Patriot Act since 2001 mm-hmm. that they, any library, they can pull your library records and find out every book you ever pulled. Right. So in a digital world, how much easier is that? Yeah, exactly. And then you trace down the kids who are trying to learn about themselves or trying to relate better to others. And then yeah. what happens to them? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's terrifying. And I like that she raised the stakes. I mean, I hated every minute of this book, but I think it was very artful <laughs> that she raised the stakes that at some point you can't be blamed for what your children do. Yeah. Right. You know, we've all done something that violated our parents. Sure. Core beliefs. Yeah. Uh, to what point of view? I don't, you know, I can't speak for anyone else. And my son recently did something that violated my core and it was very public. But I have to stand with him. And anyone who knows about what it is, is going to think that behavior of me. Yeah. And I have to be held account to it. Yeah. Even though it's 180 degrees of my core and what I've been trying to bring him up to, I have to stand again, be held account with him. So I should lose him. Mm. Like, yeah, <laughs> that's what this book shows. Right. Like, right. Your child goes out and makes a choice or you've made a choice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you, you must be set asunder. Yeah. Like, no, thank you. Yeah. But it's very artful that she raised that stake. It's a parenting, like, um, constant anxiety of my child's out in the world. I'm out in the world. Am I going to be safe to get back to them? Mm -hmm. Are they going to do all right in the world and be safe in their choices out in the world? But, but I, I mean, I'm not a parent, but I assume that you don't assume that the things that you do and believe are going to lead to 
are going to affect your child in that way, right? No. Like, like you have your core beliefs and your values yeah. that you teach your children and you do your best to instill in them, that that could be the reason why, you know, something terrible happens. Like, your whole family explodes, right? Yep. Yeah. A marriage wrecked. Yeah. A child's, you know, severed from his mother. Yeah. Like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this was definitely a um, a hard book, for mm-hmm. sure. <clears throat> Can you get, get a couple more questions in? <laughs> okay. Um, the connection between literature and protest is very powerful in this novel from the proliferation and censorship of Margaret's poetry, which totally got taken off by someone else who didn't understand. Her poetry was nothing about, but what she wrote while she was pregnant with her child, you know, and then someone else decided to redefine what her poetry meant and and anyone who didn't like her because she was asian decided to also reinvent the meaning of her work um but but it's it goes from the censorship of her poetry to the network of librarians who were talking about caring for the relocation why do you think this form of communication is so resilient against forces and events as big as crisis and pact how does it inspire individuals and groups in the novel to act, or even how does um, proliferation and censorship cause us to act, even? I would argue that the point of poetry and music and, and art like that, and art in general, is up to interpretation. You put it out in the world with your intent, but not everybody's going to take that intent from it. They're going to see what they want to. They're going to hear what they want to. They're going to read into it what they want to. So I don't necessarily think that her poem was misconstrued. I don't think it was outside of the um, scope of what she intended to translate in that poem. It was taken and used as like the battle cry for this movement, which she probably didn't want to be associated with. So for that, sure. But I would argue against the fact that that it that she's totally against that like it doesn't it doesn't represent what she stands for, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think she knew what she stood for when she wrote it or yeah. at the beginning of this whole tragedy, right? But that's true because she wouldn't have evolved to this other person because that wasn't a part of she her wasn't a, a you know out there protesting from day one. She was. She was doing what she could to survive or she was hunkering down with her family and doing what she had to 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 get by from day to day and pretending like it didn't affect them. Right. But, yeah, I think I think one of the reasons why the the use of the library or the written word or whatever is was effective is because it's really easy to hide things in a sea of letters and books and and mm-hmm. and words right little little pieces of paper with yeah. meaning like in. it's a pretty untraceable way to send information in a inner you know in a network that's all integrated with each other that is sending people books and and resources back and forth all the time anyway right well like she she sent a message in a in a book in the form of a picture how he was able to deter go from that picture to the little little parts of it to extract meaning. Yeah, that oh, was it came in the, in the mail. mail? Yeah. Yeah. But it connected him to the book. But connected it Which connected sent him, him to the, the library. library. Yeah. yeah. And got him to the Duchess's um, yeah. address. Yeah. Um, which that was all very interesting. Mm-hmm. Like, like, I think the events of the novel were very interesting. As You know, I, I, you might be getting to this, but the tension mm-hmm. of what is she working on. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. 
was very yeah. intense. <laughs> yeah. Because you, you see it so often that whatever she was wiring, you think is going to become violence. Yeah. Because that's where, I was where, worried they like, were going to be bo- little tiny bombs. Yeah. Like, oh. um, you know, a dream deferred. Does mm-hmm. it rot and fester or does it explode or right. whatever that line goes. Right. Um, I'm glad it, I'm glad it was nonviolent, but I was afraid it was not, it was going to be violent. Um, well, she teased us that we as the readers could hold on to the hope she falsely promised Bird as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have another question. So both Bird and Sadie struggle with missing parents, yet their approach to seeking a deeper understanding of their past is vastly different. What about their personalities guide the perspective, respective strategies? And why do you think their friendship is so strong? Well, they balance each other. They have a common connection. Yeah, they can relate to each other. I think a lot of children that probably were around them at at school were trained as they were to not to not talk to and to not stand out and to not bring anything up and stuff like that. So I think when Bird found somebody who was willing to talk about things like that, he was able to start connecting to the fact that it's like, oh, you know what? You're right. This is bad. And I would like to know what happened to my mom instead of just following his dad's rules and going from point a to point b don't Mm -hmm. defer from your route don't talk to strangers don't stand out you know don't you know which as a as his parent like i can imagine that's exactly what i would tell my child to do because it's got to be terrifying to think that you are so so close to having your child taken away like that like the connection between him and margaret as much as he can say i don't know this woman i don't talk to him anymore like that it's it's like a hair's width away from that happening to him right Mm -hmm. so i think as soon as bird found somebody that was like this is a bad thing we should talk about he was like maybe you're right maybe i should think about this Mm -hmm. yeah i think sadie's approach is greatly influenced by the fact that while bird had his dad sadie had no one Mm -hmm. and she was bounced from home to home and 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 her parents i think they didn't necessarily shield her from what they were doing. No. So she came up, she had a very sen- strong sense of right and wrong and I'm not going to and non-compliance. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that bird would have been a, com- would have ever been like a Sadie because I don't think it's, it's in his personality to be non-compliant. Mm-hmm. He's kind of pushing it, the boundaries because of his, his strong need to connect with his mother, which I have a sense that I got the sense that he was stronger, more connected to his mother than to his father. Yeah. Well, that's kind of natural. Dad goes off to work. Mom stays home. Like, yeah, you know, dad's a, a boring guy. You know, he does his job. He comes home. It's, he they have the, a predictable he reads life. The dictionary. Yeah. Like, which is which sweet, I it's love, sweet but, and endearing. But also you can but, hear, you, but, I mean, we all, you can know, you hear the inner groan when, yeah. when he comes, when he goes on to another etymology lesson and birds like inside going, uh, yeah, not again. Uh, um, talking about moms, let's talk for a moment about Margaret's transformation when she becomes a mother. How is she able to adapt to so many different circumstances from her rebellious and resourceful youth to the comfort of her life with Ethan, with Ethan, with, uh, with Ethan, too many THs, to the purpose driving her life and survivor when she goes into hiding. Um, I, I really felt strongly how she was so so driven that she almost didn't notice 
her circumstances, that she's not sleeping on even a mattress on the floor hardly, and that she's going without food because she's not even thinking about food. She's just thinking about this thing she has to do, um, that she forgets even how to be a mom because she's only been by herself for three and driven by this thing for three years. Um, I think it's longer than that. Oh, no, maybe it is three years. It's a quarter of his life, right? Yeah. Um, What about Bird's existence makes her willing to sacrifice it all for the children she tries to honor in her final act? Because even though she forgets how to care for him, she's never not a mother. Yeah. She doesn't forget that she, yeah, that she does care for him. And I can't, um, I'm sure that's the reason why this is so important is because she knows what it's like to have her child apart from her Mm -hmm. and as if it were somebody who you know doesn't have a child at all or has a child and 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 they're totally fine and and nothing bad has happened to them like what drive would that person have to do anything to try and correct this situation right yeah because you're just trying to survive yeah like i'm not gonna rock the boat i'm gonna keep going doing what i do that it's and it's really easy to do because it happens all the time. You're like that's sad for those people, but I can't do anything about it. Like, what power do I have to do that thing, right? But she has. I think this is a interesting point in the book too. Is that idea of a of her responsibility to do something? Is that even though she didn't intend for this to be her, it sort of is put on her as her responsibility to do something because it is her words that were taken to to. To represent this thing. And I think it's the same reason why I think anybody with a platform has a responsibility Mm -hmm. to say things when things happen. Yeah, I've really evolved on that. I have too, because I'm like, you have, you can say what you want to say or don't. It's your platform. You do whatever you want. But I do think that the responsibility is there, whether you intended to have it or not. Yep. I, I think it's just. I think it has become... It's like that song, saying nothing is still saying something. Yeah, it's... it's, I used to think, like, you're just a singer, you're just an actor, you're just a whatever. But you're not. Yeah, you have people who listen to you. And you have the ears. You've endeared yourself to whomever for for whatever reason. And if you don't want to be that voice, you can use that platform to lift other people's voices. Yeah. Right? And I think it's her responsibility to be the one to start something (laughs) to happen. I was um, thinking about rewatching. True Blood, uh-huh. and then I went down the rabbit hole of like, oh, how are Anna Paquin and uh, what's his face doing? Uh-huh. They're still happily married, and they've had twins. It's great. I love poking into um, <laughs> celebrities' lives until I remember like, th- why is is this successful to me? Yeah, and then I feel bad. Anyway, <laughs> so I was looking at her Instagram. That is exactly what she does. She is all about like pointing to like, there's very few personal posts which can't falter with a mother of young children. Yeah. And they're either about whatever um, artistic venture she's doing or she's lifting up other authors, other creators, and then letting giving them a platform. And I was, like, very impressed. Yeah. <clears throat> One of the things I thought, um, I feel like what really drove her purpose was when she went to meet with the, with the parents yeah. of of the, the, the gal who... The 19-year-old girl. Marie. The 19-year-old Marie. Yeah. And... And because their hostility towards her rubbed me wrong, though. Oh, I think it was totally grief. No, no, I think it was completely justifiable. If I were in their position, I would be like the dad. I'd be like, "Don't what? Why are you here? Like, I don't want to talk to you. You know, I don't have any responsibility to make you, you feel, feel better." Yeah, that I get actually. Yeah, 
you they have no responsibility to make anybody feel better. Yeah. So maybe it's an amplification of everybody like taking their dog because that I, the part where the mom and dad are like nobody really knew her. Yeah. And she's become yeah. this symbol. So I guess there probably would meet anyone with hostility. Yeah. I, I, I feel like I feel like they feel like their daughter has been mis um, misaligned. And by the media and misjudged. Not misaligned, but malappropriated. Like taken Take, yeah. from being their daughter to being a symbol. Yeah. And they and they didn't really know her. And I feel like they're not trusting because of her because she if Margaret comes and they don't know her. They don't know that she's not going to try to use their their daughter's her daughter's their daughter's memory. Yeah. But she becomes a good listener. I think the father felt a lot stronger about that than the mother. Um, and Maria's mom was just grateful to be able to voice the person that they knew their daughter to be. Yeah. And the father came around at first, you know, and I, I, I like that it gave that Margaret gave them all the time that they need those several days to, um, to be able to walk through it's part of the grieving and being able to voice and trying to talk about, they had this inside and no one was listening to them when they're saying, no, this was who our daughter was. And they got to get a voice and they got to share who, and that I think was what started to drive her to tell other people's stories. Yeah. And to, you know, it because becomes her whole mission, because whether that child gets, re- gets reconnected or not, which is very, since they move them from state to state, um, I don't think the librarians were really, you're never going to, they're never going to be in each other's lives again, but they mm-hmm. can keep tabs on where, mm-hmm. or just know they're okay. Like the, the parents yeah. were only ever going to get a speck, a speck, yeah. which a speck is something, you know? Yeah. But yeah. So that's, I, I think that action of listening and listening to the the ranch the those parents and is what mm-hmm. changed her as a mo- mother to like that's you're right that's what ge- became her mission yeah. like i'm not she wasn't sure how but she was going to make a voice for these parents and tell the be able to give a a you know a, i don't know where i'm going with that so <laughs> anyway. yeah no you're right it's 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 what gives her a purpose cuz at that point when you have left your family for their own safety and have run away, like what is what the hell is she gonna do? Yeah, where's she gonna go? What's she gonna do with the rest of her mm-hmm. life? So um, I only have two more questions. Yeah, uh, one of these is because libraries have a very are very dear near and dear to me. I I as a person who's whose um, upbringing was always chaos. I loved libraries because they were a quiet calm place to be i could be there for hours and no one questioned You're me like matilda i love <laughs> libraries not all libraries are great some were not comfortable and i've noticed that the feeling of libraries changed as you get more digital and i still have a soft spot for card stacks um that was a good good scene <laughs> yeah <laughs> those are like all books showing a, a stranger in a foreign land you know? yeah <laughs> So what is the special allure of the stacks in the university library for Bird and, and for Ethan? Do all libraries carry the same quality to, of discovery and comfort? I don't think so. Have you been to a library that held that mis- that mix of dust and leather and melted vanilla 
ice cream, warm like the scent of someone's skin. I wouldn't say it was vanilla ice cream, but there is something about, I've got, uh, I, I can think of two libraries that, they're old libraries that had, back when I was um, a kid and a young, a young adult, I remember my college library was one of those old ones with arches and lots of wood. So I always associate that, that dust and wood and paper smell. Um, and you could go way back deep into the stacks where the lighting wasn't great, mm-hmm. but you're surrounded by all these potential stories. Yeah. So, um, I don't know. I always had a warm, comfy, comfy place for it, especially they had the long, big wood tables. When they changed to little short computer stacks, it's not the same to me in the modern libraries, but I'm told that there's other libraries that are historical. I think I feel like I would get that sense from one that was yeah. in an old historical building. I've been to Trinity College Library in Dublin, which is like a thousand years old, right? Like <laughs> older than anything in America. <laughs> And it feels like a completely magical place, like 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 Harry Potter, like like it looks like that it's old and musty and dusty, but it's also like extremely beautiful because like the care and detail that goes into preserving a place like that is incredible. But like, I the idea of the allure of the library is like that's where that's where all of the history is. That's where the information is. That's where you go. In whatever form, like, that's where the important things are, right? And in the digital world, you could get all that online. But then there's, you know, the the Library of Congress, like, has, like, that's where our history lies, right? So if you need to find something like um, Bird to to go and, and have this vague memory of a story and be like, can you help me find this random thing? Mm-hmm. That's what the libra- librarian's there for. You know, I like the idea that, like, I always thought it would be really fun to be a librarian oh i think it would be amazing yeah yeah it's a degree it's, yeah it's, it's a lot of it's a lot it's of school a to be a librarian yeah it's a it's it's almost as much schooling as to be a lawyer yep. or a doctor mm-hmm. it's incredibly how that's much. why i'm not a librarian <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah exactly <laughs> and uh, thoughts i like libraries too yeah <laughs> okay. i'm a bad library citizen i can't be trusted with um taking books out I have only really connected with the one library in Fillmore that I went to as a child. Yeah. And I had, like, we did, like, the summer reading program and you got to earn prizes and stuff. So, like, I always loved going to the library. Mm -hmm. And then I didn't go for years and years until I was an adult. And I was like, I want a library card again. And I went in and it was exactly the same as I remembered when I was a little kid. And it was very comforting. I, I, I enjoy when I do go there. But... I, as an adult in the 21st century, I don't have an excuse to visit the library very often. Yeah. You know? I like the sad. Oxnard Public Library. That's when I do go is, yeah. like, with the kids because they love the books, right? Because my dad took us every, whatever the length of rental time. I think it was two and then it changed to three weeks. Yeah. Um, and I would take my stack of books and voraciously read them and then we would take them yep. back. But on my own, I am a bad library citizen. So <laughs> Uh, well, I love that at the Oxnard Public Library, I can t- check out up to 50 books. Yeah, that's bad. And you I can't would, be trusted no, no. with 50 yeah. books. Nope. I've I come close to that trusted. when the kids were little, because, but and because you had a whole month. Yeah, it's bad recipe. But then I realized, okay, we're not getting through all these books in a month. I'm no, I don't need to do 50 just because I can. Just because you can. <laughs> yeah. Um, but... Yeah, but and they have a nice kid section 
it, where the kids can sit on big, on, on kid size beanbag mm-hmm. type chairs and they have a good a place to tell stories and, and that their, and their books stay organized in a really good way. So, okay. So last question, which form of storytelling resonated with you most in the novel or in life in general, written or oral? How are they each used in ways to preserve the truth of lived experience when history or other dominant powers try to erase them, such as the missing children and market herself? I think uh, oral storytelling is always going to be more compelling to me because you get the intonation of in the the emphasis and however somebody wants to be like if you hand me a stack of stories like if you if let's say margaret released a book um under a pseudonym it was all of these people's stories it was like a you know a free zine or something that Mm -hmm. got distributed or pamphlet or something like that's far less compelling i think than her voice over a thousand million you know two thousand tiny speakers right um which is another reason why I enjoy audiobooks too, is because I enjoy somebody telling me a story. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I love a good story. Audibly. Um, I, I like them both, you know? Yeah. Like I like to immerse in my own little brain. Like I heard someone phrase reading as, um, like sheets of dead trees and staring at ink on them and hallucinating for half an hour. Or whatever. Yeah, which is very <laughs> fun to do. Essentially, what reading is. Yeah, <laughs> and um, but I also love being read to. Mm-hmm. You know, my mom did a lot of that, and that once I got that, that's what audiobooks were like. The whole world of of reading and storytelling and enjoying an author's way of crafting a story. Because, like, yeah, we could listen to podcasts or we could mm-hmm. watch movies, but there's something special about the author crafting yeah. a complete tale. I always enjoy when I can find an audiobook that's narrated by the author. Yeah. And I always think that's so much better um, than a celebrity or just a, an audiobook reader, right? I have mixed feelings. Yeah. Like, I don't like Bill Bryson as a reader. It- it depends on the author. Yeah, some of them are great. Some of them are, some are, of them are better authors yeah. than they are. I will, yeah, storytellers. I will, I will say Lucy Liu was not great. Like I found her to be very whispery, breathy at points. I can't give it a fair answer because I read it. I, I listened to it. At I went like one point five speed, which normally is way too fast, but this was like totally fine. Um, and then I slowed it down near the end, which is, I usually do because it's like, if I'm at the climax, I want, like, I have time, I'm going to slow it down just so I make sure I don't miss anything. And I was like, oh my God, we are going so slow. I couldn't do it in this one because I just needed this book to be done. Yeah, that's fair. Which is, I don't think I would have. not fair to the author. No. But this was a very traumatic book for me. But I don't think I would have (laughs) been able to. I'm always complaining that books are too slow. I don't think that this one was, but one of the reviews that I saw over and over is that people thought that it was. Well, I'm like, well, I listened to it like way sped up, so maybe that makes a difference. Mm-hmm. It does. But it doesn't always for me no. because I've also listened to other books that mm-hmm. at that same and speed and been yeah. real bored. I think the events of this novel were riveting. Yes. So I listened to this twice. Mm-hmm. I li- listened to it right right away when we first picked it. Uh, at regular speed and you're right it is really quiet it Mm -hmm. didn't feel long but it just felt quiet and there are parts that I think I missed because when it's too quiet my brain checks out a little bit and I had to go back and multiple times and stop and re-listen but then just today 
I read through the, listened to the whole thing at one and a half speed because I had a long day. Yeah. And the whole tone of it was much easier to get through because I got through it quicker. Mm, sure. Interesting. You know, if, if you were struggling at one and a half, it would have been hard, very, very hard at, yeah. at, at, at just regular one yeah. speed. Um, I think and it, also her voice was a little e- easier to listen. It wasn't that it was hard. And there's no, no shade on Lucy Lou, but it just at the quicker speed. You're right. I, I actually stopped. It didn't sound like they were like chipmunking their way through no. it. It, it it had a little more attention, a little more I emphasis. I think you would have enjoyed Grapes of Wrath much better if you had sped it up faster. <laughs> I think I was at like one and a quarter at least. <laughs> no, that's even at one and, yeah, one and a half. That book's long. I, I liked it, but okay. it's long, yes. Um, so, yeah, I I always love a good radio play. I'm, I'm more of an audible, auditory li- learner i am not an auditory um, learner but i like being read too <laughs> but yeah i always love a good someone telling me a story it, i feels feels more even though i'm not interacting with it it feels more interactive because i'm not as closed in yeah although well yeah maybe i am because i put my headphones on and so no one will talk to me because <laughs> i'm listening and i make it very clear when someone interrupts uh, excuse excuse me Give me a moment to pause. It wasn't this. I thing. am really, really dry. I'm really dramatic about that too, to make it very clear you're interrupting me. It wasn't this book. I was listening to something else this month, um, but I got to take the train from San Diego to Ventura, and I sat next to this very nice man who was getting off in Moore Park. I'm like, oh, why not L.A. or Santa Ana? <laughs> uh, but thankfully, a seat opened up for him so he moved away from me he's like i'm sorry i'd like a window seat oh no problem sir anyway he kept talking even though i had the earphones in i had my knitting i would have ignored him (laughs) (sighs) um that's funny yeah it didn't work for me (laughs) i should have been more harumphy maybe it would have worked well thank you both this was uh this was a, a much more emotional book than yeah. I, when I picked it, I just knew I liked the author. I didn't know as much about it. And I certainly did. Cause I picked this months ago waiting for my turn. And I hadn't, it would, <laughs> it wouldn't have been as scary if current life, if real life yeah. wasn't well, kind of scary driving, right now. If, as I was driving, listening to this, I caught the flag that's flying upside down on off the one Oh one for the first time indicating that our country's currently in distress. Mm. But I don't think we agree on why it's in distress if you're going to fly that flag upside down. I I did want to, like, get on a soapbox for a second and say that, like I said at the beginning, like, you think, like, this is not something that you could see happening in the near future, right? But we have the likely candidate for the Republican nomination for the presidency saying things like how great they think the Chinese president is or how well or how much he respects the dictator of North Korea. Mm-hmm. And it's so easy to think like he- that totalitarian government is not going to happen in America, but we're a near corn- coin flip away from yeah. that person becoming the, the president. Fashion- again. Over. Everyone who wants to be president wants a totalitarian, totalitarian regime, only they're yeah. on the opposite side. So if Newsom gets himself in there too, yeah. he has no respect for the rule of law just coming from the left. And then you have DeSantis, who is... 
the other likely. Yeah. And he is burning bucks, essentially. Yeah. Like, they're almost the same so person. Get, yeah. on, let me, get on your side. I want to get yeah. on your side bucks with you. So I, my, my, my point is, it's easy to put your head in the sand, but the most important and effective thing we can do is to keep ourselves informed, which yeah. sucks. Yep. But you have to do it and you have to vote no matter what election it is. Because it it's easy to vote for the president and it's important and, and everybody knows that that's something important to do. But every single nomination, every single thing on your ballot to research all of the people and to vote for all of the people in all of the positions, yes. which yes. is hard and a lot of work, but it is so important. All politics important. are local. All of the things that all of frustrate us start... start- yeah. And it starts with the smaller, it's not always the big it's presidential the one. Yeah. It start exactly. It's it starts the, with the school board. It your starts judiciary, with yeah, your it's all the elections. Things. It So so keep yourself informed, vote for every single thing and donate money if you can to whoever's campaign you think is important and also to to donate to campaigns and to parties early because the earlier your money gets in there the more effective it is yeah. if you wait to the last minute for the candidate that you're really excited about who's like hey uh, the elections next week i really need some more money your money is not going to be as effective and it it could be a dollar it could be five dollars but getting the money into <coughs> any sort of candidate or party that you think is important as early as possible um and it, and the number one thing is just to not look these things and look at these things and put them aside and assume that somebody else is going to do that work because that's how bad things happen. Right. Yep. Yep. That's all I wanted to say. <laughs> um, I, I fully, hard, Wait, I fully we, agree. Yep. That's a, that's a unanimous for us. For the, for, we all stand together yeah. on that. Yeah. Even, you know, we don't all match exactly on our politics, but, no, but, but I the agree things with that are every important. second, every bit of what you just said. Yeah. I, I, I always like to think about like, we might not agree about the way to get to there, but we all agree that that's the place that we want to go, right? Yeah. Um, so, anybody else read anything else this month? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. I read something this month. Oh, tell us, Katie. Tell us what you read. I read a book called The Lost Apothecary. My phone is currently recording this podcast, so I can't look it up, but I'm pretty sure the author's name is Sarah Penner. Um I you'd have to fact check me, but it's called The Lost Apothecary. Um, I very much enjoyed it. I found it because Tamber was talking about a new release from this author that I almost chose for our um book club today because it's my pick, but I think I'm gonna save it. Um and it's like her second novel. So I was like, I should go back and reread her um first novel. Um but it's about um a, an apothecary in London in um like olden times and it's been a while since I've read it but I did read it this month and how she with the apothecary in the name yeah she's (laughs) sort of like doling out potions to kill bad men is essentially the idea (laughs) but it was it was really good I very much enjoyed it and I'm excited to read her second novel which I think is called oh shoot um I can't remember what it is, but I, I might choose it for a book club in the future, or I might just read it myself because I, I enjoyed it. But um, that is... London Seance Society? The London Seance Society. Yes, that's her second novel. <laughs> I have not read that yeah. yet, but Lost Apothecary was very good. You're reading... I think that's a good... Like, always start with the authors first. Yeah, because I, I was like, like I want to read this. I'm like, no, nah, I should read this other one first. Yeah. And I actually, like, read it, like, with my eyeballs nice. and not my ears. Nice. 
Uh, I have been escaping into <coughs> Lois Penny's um, Inspector Gamash novels. Uh-huh. I'm oh, like yeah. One, one a week. <clears throat> Uh, that is what I was listening to when the nice man kept <clears throat> talking to me on the train. <laughs> um, they're wonderful. And I can't wait to start the next one, except I try to keep my brain clear till we podcast. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I've read the first four and they're a delight. And I will probably keep repeating, re- keep repeating this report until I've read all 17 <laughs> of them. Uh, they are delightful. And she's a, she's, you know, for like, because you can kind of think of those genre-based mysteries, yeah. romances, a little pulpy. She has a lot of really interesting insights into like yeah. people's lives and how and I we don't, move. I don't think the world. pulpy is a bad thing. No, too. I don't either. Karen, uh, what have you read? Uh, well, I read "Leave the World Behind" by Ruma. I'm not sure how to pronounce the first name. Rumaan. Alam, R-U-M-A-A-N. It's actually kind of in the same genre that we, <laughs> that we've been <coughs> reading. So it was a heavy month, but really, really good. Um, How High We Go in the Dark by Sequoia Nagamatsu. Um, also excellent, excellent book. And I'm currently reading Where It Rains in Color by Denise Crittenden, which is sci-fi, but instead of, imagine that instead of having different countries, you have different group people groups on different planets mm-hmm. and where the darker the color of the person is more highly prized. But for the same reason that it's all for beauty and um, aesthetics, for, but other people uh, without the same beauty or aesthetics or even with... Um, a whole lot of ableism happens because one whole planet in this thing goes missing and nobody even notices that they are drifting out of order. And in order to get back in, there's a whole lot of um, political <clears throat> nuances going on, but um, that is also really good. The evolution of it, of the rare indigo is um, really, really fascinating. Cool. So those were the three. Um, well, it's my pick for our next book. Um, I have chosen a book called The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue, which has been relatively popular. Um, it was highly recommended at, um, our favorite bookstore. Um, it's by V.E. Schwab. Love her. Um, so the A-D-D-I-E, The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. Um, okay. The little teaser says... France, 1714. In a moment of desperation, a young woman named Adeline meets a dangerous stranger and makes a terrible mistake. When she realizes the limitations of her Faustian bargain, being able to live forever without being able to be remembered by anyone she sees, Addie chooses to flee her small village as everything she once held dear is torn away. But there are still dreams to be had and a life to live, and she's determined to find excitement and satisfaction in the wide beckoning world, even if she will be doomed to be forever alone. Or not quite alone. As every year on their anniversary, the alluring Luke comes to visit, checking to see if she's ready to give up her soul. Their darkly thrilling game stretches through the ages, seeing Addie witness history and fight to regain herself as she crosses ocean, oceans and tries on various lives. It will be 300 years before she stumbles into a hidden bookstore and discovers someone who can remember her name, and suddenly everything changes again. I adore this author. I actually Good. also just finished reading one of, she has several like series of stories uh-huh. and I just finished reading, uh, re-reading one of her, um, her series and nice. I, 
I love her. Cool. I'm, I'm excited. Yeah, this just came out on paperback, and I was in uh, Tambra Books, and I saw it, and I was like, that's a book from my list I want to read. So that's what we're reading next month. So love it. Yay. Thank you all for joining us. Um, be sure to check out our Instagram and our um, uh, Patreon is the word if you want more from us. And our regular podcast episode will be out in a few weeks. Um, and we'll talk to you all then. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Strings Unraveled is a production of Strings and Things Studio with Anne Lecrevin Cazzoli, Katie Von Rader Fraker, and Karen Wilmoth. Recorded and edited by Katie Von Rader Fraker. Find us online at stringsandthingsstudio.com or on Facebook or Instagram at Strings and Things Studio. You can email us at stringsandthingsinfo at gmail.com. 